0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Fire Science Show. Today I'm having a treat for you, and that's an episode on investigations and forensic fire science, something I wanted to do for a very long time. I found a very perfect guest for this episode. That is Dr. Richard Robby, the president and director at Combustion Science and Engineering, a renowned combustion scientist, and someone with literally five decades of experience in fire engineering investigations, and, and combustion. And also a person very passionate about spreading the knowledge and teaching. So definitely a very good person to, to have on a podcast. And with uh, Richard, we're touching the ideas of the use of scientific method in forensic fire science in fire investigations. It's very relevant for everyone, fire engineers, please listen to this episode because we can learn a lot from investigators and it's a part of fire science that we also need to learn to appreciate and and use in our design but anyway enough of me talking this episode is really good and you won't listen to it so let's spin the intro and jump into the episode welcome to the fireside show my name is Wojciech Wingszyński and I will be your host And before we jump into the episode, please give me a few seconds to acknowledge the role of my sponsor of this episode and the whole of the podcast in this year, OFR Consultants, without whom I would not be able to publish this podcast every week for free for all of you to listen. So thank you very much, OFR. OFR Consultants are a multi-award winning independent consultancy dedicated to addressing fire safety challenges. OFR is the UK's leading fire risk consultancy. His globally established team has developed a reputation for preeminent fire engineering expertise with colleagues working across the world to help protect people, property, and environment. In 2023, OFR is growing its team and it's always keen to hear from industry professionals who would like to collaborate on fire safety features this year. Get in touch at OFRconsultants.com. And now back to the episode on fire investigations. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I'm here today with Dr. Richard Robby from Combustion Science and Engineering. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. About to have a fantastic interview. How about you? <laughs> great. And I thank you for inviting me to your show. I'm really excited for this interview. I was reading through your scientific bio and I've learned that you have received four Bigelstone Awards. That is crazy. I have one. I'm super proud of it. But to meet someone who has four? I think we're up to six now, so... You're up to six, I was like, ah, oh, that is crazy, fantastic. Which means you are fantastic science communicators and this is exactly what I need for this podcast. And the subject for today would be the use of scientific method in fire investigations, forensic fire science, and how how we can actually solve fires with the use of science. So perhaps let's start by defining the the scientific method because this may not be obvious, So how about we start with that?
1: Sure. So the scientific method actually takes its roots from more than 500 years ago in the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was based on a a simple premise that was revolutionary at the time, but we more or less accept today, sometimes less but more. And that was that nature is governed by certain observable, definable laws that can ultimately be determined through the application of the scientific method. And that methodology is that you collect data. First, you decide, what do you want to understand? For Newton, it was, you know, why does the apple fall from the tree and, okay. and and fall down? So how can I understand that? The first thing you do is you collect data. And then based on the data, and this is very important, based on the data, you formulate one or right. more hypotheses. Then you use the hypotheses to challenge the laws that we already know of science or of math. and you find a conflict between them, then you have to revise your hypothesis. Or you may have multiple hypotheses, and only one of those hypotheses actually fits with all the facts and all the evidence. A simple example of the scientific method I like to give is Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus used to go down to the docks as a kid, and the data that he observed was that as the ships returned from the sea, he could always see the crow's nest and the top of the mast before he could see the bottom of the ship. Now, having been a student mathematical geometry, he basically took that data and formulated a hypothesis that the only way that could be true is if the Earth was curved. And at that time, of course, people thought the Earth was flat and they would sail off the end of the Earth and fall off. And so I like to say he tested that hypothesis (laughs) to going to the Queen Isabella and saying, hey, if you'll fund me for a ship, I'll prove to you that the earth is round and I'll, I'll sail around it. And that's how he tested his hypothesis and he didn't fall off the edge of the earth. So that's a very simple application of the scientific
0: method. That's also an awesome uh, example of uh, how by trying one thing, you can find something else because he didn't really seem to confirm the earth, but he found a nice continent. So that's, that's not a
1: bad outcome either. Yes, but yeah, he, he did not yeah, fall. That actually, suit. actually, I uh, went to Magellan to actually be the first one to circumnavigate the Earth. So, in terms
0: of forensic fire science, um, I've never done forensic fire science actually, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated how clues and and uh, scars after fire can help you in, navigate what what happened. So, first, you said you have to define the problem or define the the thing that you are looking for with the scientific method when. You attempt an investigation, what are you looking for? Like, what's your end goal at the beginning before you even form your hypothesis?
1: So, typical goals in an investigation are to determine the origin, to determine the cause, and to determine the responsibility. Now, there mm-hmm. can be sometimes in specific cases a little broader than that, but those are usually the three main things we're trying to do. And the origin is Where exactly in this universe of charred remains did the fire actually start? Because we literally want to understand what brought the first ignited substance together with what we would call competent ignition source to actually start a fire that was in some way unwanted. Mm -hmm. The, The responsibility goes in the legal realm, It goes to who may be responsible for paying for the damage or was there a crime involved. But there's a really important aspect, the responsibility that sometimes in our litigious society gets lost, and that is future fire safety. By understanding what caused the fire, where it occurred, and ultimately what the responsibility for that is, we can change future fire safety. And an example I give is you have a hotel lobby with nice, beautiful couches that are overstuffed and everything, and somebody's smoking in one of the couches and inadvertently drops a cigarette into the couch and leaves. And in the middle of the night, that transitions to flaming and you get this roaring fire in the lobby of the hotel. Now, there are multiple outcomes we could have based on the situation. So origin, I go in and I ultimately determine the origin was between a cushion and the edge of of the couch. Cause, I can ultimately determine it was somebody inadvertently dropped a lit cigarette. And that's what started the fire. But responsibility, I can have two outcomes. One is there's a massive fire in the hotel; it spreads up through the hotel, kills a lot of people, and that sort of thing, because there was no sprinkler system. Another outcome is the lobby's fully sprinklered. As the fire starts to to rage, the sprinklers come on; they douse the fire. There's a there's a wet mess, but everybody goes home safe. So the ultimate responsibility for that fire has an enormous impact on public policy because you might now want to go after the first fire where there was no sprinkler and say, we're not only requiring sprinklers in all new hotels, but maybe this was so bad that we need to go and require them retroactively. So an important aspect of forensic fire determination, besides who's guilty of something, either a tort or a crime, is were the codes adequate? You know, was the public policy adequate? Were the situations adequate? And do we use that to inform our code making process? so that we can make a safer world from a fire safety point of view going forward. Are those
0: investigations always so ignition oriented? Like for me as a fire engineer who designs buildings, I don't really care that much about the ignition source. I just assume a fire has happened in my building right. that I'm designing. And and so for me, it's it's irrelevant uh, what, what caused the ignition. And if I look at a building which has sustained like severe damage, it's hard for me to put the blame on the fact that the fire has happened because there was an ignition source. For me, it perhaps is wrong engineering of the building. But when I look at, at the forensic fire science, always I yeah, the ele- electrical socket was the source of ignition or someone set it on fire or it was negligence. by so- Even, you know, looking at, for example, Grenfell Inquiry with this horrible fire that happened in the UK. Yes. So many people have focused on the faulty fridge or whatever was the appliance that, that started the fire. But it's hard for me to blame Grenfell on the appliance manufacturer. And I don't think that that was the final outcome of the inquiry either. So, 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 so how do you do that?
1: You, you raise a very important question that again goes back to what is the ultimate goal of your inquiry? And one of the ways we can talk about that is it may be to identify failures in the fire safe design of the building. Okay. And that could be based on failure of somebody to bring existing knowledge there in the design and building of the building. But in some cases it's like, okay, something happened we didn't anticipate before and we need to change it. And one of the ones I think about is the King's Cross subway fire in in uh, London many years ago, where we didn't understand how fires could spread up a inclined trench. And so we weren't worried about the fact that we had these wooden moving stairs and that they were confined and that they were angled because we simply didn't understand the fire science of that. So in doing that investigation, we ultimately did. And now we force people to design those systems differently. And that's one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest long lasting outcomes of fire investigation is not just somebody has somebody else's insurance company pays instead of my insurance company, or somebody goes to jail, that us as fire designers, fire safety designers, can design better or whatever the ignition source is, but ignition sources matter too. And if you go back to my hotel lobby case, it might've been good enough in that case to simply have smoke alarms in the lobby, okay. right? Because if it starts as a smoldering fire, then you get alerted to the fire when there's still time for the fire department or hose crew to come in and stop it from spreading throughout the building. You don't necessarily have to have breaker systems, which can do a lot more damage, especially if they inadvertently go. So in those cases, the specific ignition source does matter. And also the first material that matters because it goes to the issue, right? We always talk about heat release rate in fire. Mm-hmm. Right? Engineering yeah. is ultimately about the rate at which things happen. Yep. And so if you know what the ignition source is and you know what the first fuel is, then you get the heat release rate. And that can be very important because as a designer, you design based on certain assumptions about the fire growth rate, the fire location, what kinds of other fuels it can attack, and that sort of thing. And so being able to understand the specific origin and the specific ignition source does become important in a different way in the fire safety design. My God, now
0: I would love to make an episode about liability of the design fire choice.
1: And and that's, that's exactly an issue. So when we do, when we do performance based modeling, right? Somebody's got to pick a design fire. Yeah. And, and that's me
0: usually in my case. (laughs) And now I'm scared. And (laughs) so
1: the question is, how representative is your design fire of the actual fire that could occur? And we go back to these issues of origin. If if that sofa is in the middle of the lobby, as opposed to up against a wall where there are big drapes and everything and that it can rapidly spread, Mm -hmm. we have two different fire scenarios, although the same basic fire scenario is the same. Cigarette inadvertently dropped in a couch, couch smolders for a while and then transitions to flaming. Matters what the surrounding materials are and the size of the fire and whether you can radiantly spread that fire to adjacent Mm. materials based on the location of the initial fire. Okay, so
0: I'll leave that episode idea for the future, but we'll do it one day. (laughs) But let's go back to to forensic fire science. So applying scientific methods into fire investigations. I am not completely sure if everyone in the world of of fire science is is familiar with really particular path of the scientific method. So maybe let's try to do a step-by-step how does one apply scientific method in a way that they can claim? I have applied science to solve this properly.
1: Great question. So we talk in forensic fire science, we talk about data and evidence. Okay. So what was what, the difference? <laughs> yeah, the difference is very important. So my fire happens and it happens late at night. And I determined that that night there was a full moon. That is data. It's, it's object data. I can I can determine it and it's reliable, right? We've known the phases of the moon for centuries now, but is it relevant to the fire? So we take data and we analyze data to say, one, is it reliable? And two, is it relevant? Because only data that is relevant and reliable now becomes evidence with which to formulate a hypothesis. Okay. So the phase of the moon doesn't tell you anything about the origin or cause
0: of the fire. So once the data is confirmed to be reliable and relevant, it it can become an
1: evidence in your investigation. Right. And then when you've, when you've collected sufficient evidence, you now start formulating hypotheses. What are hypotheses? They're what some people call theories, scenarios, whatever term you want to use for how the fire occurred. Again, maybe. The first thing you're trying to identify is the origin. So you gather a lot of data and that data may be burn marks. It may be materials that are burned. The distance, how far was a material that was burned from a material that didn't burn? That tells you something about the size of the fire. Was okay. only one side of the adjacent material burned? That tells you something about the direction the fire was spreading. So you gather this data. And you use the data to follow back to and say, okay, in my opinion, based on reliable evidence, the fire started in the left corner of this conference room. And even though ultimately it spread to the whole conference room, by following all this evidence, I can put it back in corner. Well, my first hypothesis may have actually been that while smoke and hot gases got out of the conference room, all the burn damage is in the conference room. So my first origin hypothesis might be the origin was in the conference room. So I've got sufficient, reliable evidence to narrow down from the building. Some people say, I start with the universe, Mm -hmm. I move to the solar system, then to the the Earth, then to the, you know. And then it's easy. (laughs) But your your origin, your goal is to keep shrinking the origin as much as you possibly can based on reliable evidence. So I get it now to the conference room and hopefully I can get it to the corner of the conference room. Because once I can do that, now I can start doing a cause analysis. Because I know that if in fact that is my area of origin, it has to have two things. It has to have a reliable ignition source and it has to have a fuel that can be ignited to be the first fuel ignited by that ignition source. So I now have to challenge my origin hypothesis, right? And this is where the scientific method becomes an iterative process. I now go in and I say, oh, the only material that was in that corner was a metal lounge chair that had metal slats and wasn't capable of burning. So now I have to take that evidence once I've confirmed it and say, yes, in fact, it was made entirely of not combustible material. It didn't even have plastic armrests. You know, I might have first thought there mm-hmm. were and say, okay, now I got to reformulate my origin hypothesis. I'm still in the room, but that particular evidence is not consistent with the area of origin that I have hypothesized. And so does that mean I can't find an area of origin? No, that's why it's an iterative process. So now I start looking at other areas nearby because I got there by saying, I think a lot of the burn pattern evidence and maybe eyewitness testimony directed me there. And what I ultimately find is, say, the poster behind me, that somebody quickly looked in the door and saw what was a reflection of the fire and what they thought they were seeing was the fire. And so where my eyewitness testimony originally took me to one corner, Now I find out, oh, they may have been seeing a reflection. That's new data. Can I reliably determine that that could have reflected the light of the fire? And if I do, then I say, ah, now I have a new hypothesis that it was actually the opposite corner. I was about to
0: ask about the testimony of of eyewitness or firefighters on the scene. First of all, to what extent you consider this as a reliable source of data? And uh, like, how much trust you can put in that, and to what extent this guides your investigations.
1: Well, my my own opinion and my experience is most eyewitnesses are not lying. Okay, you know, say, "Are you are yes. you saying that that eyewitness was lying?" I'm saying, no, he or she was mistaken because okay. most people, as I like to say, have never in their life experienced what I call a fire and anger. Mm-hmm. Right, they've seen a fire in a fireplace or a campfire or a fire on the stove oh, yes. or something, But you and I have seen a fire in anger, an uncontrolled fire, and and that's an entirely different circumstance. And we find that even firefighters sometimes don't fully understand what they're seeing. And so, what the scientific method obligates, I always say, if I have to choose between a law of physics and an eyewitness, I go with the law of physics every time because what makes it a law is it. To date, it has not yet been proved to be false, whereas we know that eyewitnesses have been proved to be wrong. Mm And so part of the process is, and 921 talks about this, is you have to take eyewitness testimony and compare it with objectively verifiable scientific evidence and see if they're consistent. Mm -hmm. And if they aren't consistent, then you have to discount the, the eyewitness testimony. So again, like in the case I gave you, the eyewitness said, that it was in that corner. And I went in and said, no, there's nothing combustible in that corner. So although that may be what they thought they saw, it can't be what they saw. So can I explain in another way? And all of a sudden I realized, oh, there was a, a poster board there that early in the fire before it got burned would have acted like a mirror. And now I can understand what they saw. They didn't understand what they saw. They were being honest, but they were just wrong. And now I can use the laws of physics understanding how lights reflect, and I go to a different corner. And now I find that there's material there that's readily ignitable. I find an ignition source. I find an outlet that that shows that has undergone uh, runaway thermal heating. And now I have a new hypothesis that the fire started in the opposite corner. And I can now say that that's consistent with all the available data, including the eyewitness testimony, once I understand that they were seeing a reflection. You've mentioned nine to one. So
0: so to the listeners, you're most likely referring to NFPA, nine to one fire and explosion investigations. Uh, that covers much of it. And actually the use of scientific method is a part of this standard. I have it in front of my eyes and it looks very impressive, the, the standards uh, to the whole committee. Congratulations on putting together such a
1: well-crafted handbook that, that certainly helps investigators. To, consistent with the scientific method, NFPA 921 yeah. is always going through revisions Yeah, because we get new information, we get new data, we get new evidence, we get better understandings, and we find out that sometimes what we used to believe was wrong. i can give you a very simple example. Yeah, we used to believe that crazed glass was an, an indicator that a flammable liquid had been used And it was considered a key indicator of an arson fire. Okay, Through scientific testing and analysis and everything, we found that what causes crazed glass is the glass gets real hot and then you hit it with a hose stream. And that rapid cooling, just like when you drop an ice cube in a warm drink, is actually what caused the crazed glass. And it's not dependent on what the actual fuel that was burning to heat up the glass was a misunderstanding. When I took my first fire investigation course in the late '70s from the New York State Fire Academy, I was taught that crazed glass was a was an arson indicator. We now know that's not true, so we have to revise 921. Just like the scientific method causes you to do this iterative process, I have some, my experience with NFP
0: standards, and I'm also a part of European uh, standardization and. Uh... I certainly appreciate uh, the way how NFPA approaches updating the standards, and I've said it here many, many times. I know many people in US don't like it and are disappointed with it, but guys, uh, your organization is really good. <laughs> Congratulations to the FPA for for keeping their uh, standards true to the science and up with the scientific method. So Richard, you have your data, you have evidence, you have burn scars that are proven to be useful in your study, you know, that they came from the fire. How does one read that to find the origin? Is looking at the fire scene enough or it's just the beginning of the process?
1: It's the beginning of the process. Yeah. Sometimes you have to go back and do laboratory analysis. One of the ways we test hypotheses is through computer fire modeling. Okay. Because typically one of the hypotheses Ultimately, we say if you want to determine the origin and cause of the fire, one of the things you need to be able to do is explain how the fire spread from the first item ignited. So you do your origin and cause analysis and you're proud of yourself. You identified the first fuel ignited. You identified a competent ignition source. But now, can you explain how the fire spread? And that how can be in two ways can be both geometrically how did it spread? But as we know, as one of my partner's professors at WPI famously said, time is the yardstick by which we measure fire. And so the other question is, will your origin and cause account for the rate at which the fire spread, not just geographically how it spread? And that's Mm -hmm. one of the ways that, that fire models can help us because they can help us without having to go and build and actually burn to test the scenarios, which we have done and still is done from time to time, the models allow us to test that physics and do multiple iterations and say, okay, let's assume that it's this way and that leads to one hypothesis or this way. We run the model and what we find out is one way causes the smoke detector to go off in a minute. The other one causes the smoke detector to go off in five minutes. And we know that somebody was there because they heard the smoke detector about two minutes into the fire. So now the model says, okay, I can eliminate the scenario that results in the alarm not going off till five minutes, but I now can still, it doesn't prove the one in one minute, but it's not eliminated. And the scientific method is constantly trying to eliminate. And when, when you can't eliminate everything, what you're left with, if it's reliable and you have sufficient confidence in it, then that becomes, at least for the time until you get better data, your ultimate conclusion. Now, sometimes we don't get enough data to make that certain. For example, what if my modeling shows that either the one-minute or the five-minute scenario could be possible under the origin and cause I've determined? I have two competing hypotheses. I haven't been able to distinguish between them, and therefore, I don't have a reliable Ultimate origin and cause, because I have two different scenarios, either of which can be reasonably valid. So, for for fire modeling, you, you
0: need reliable input data. So, I, I wonder how, how do you find the data in the in the destroyed scene? Like, uh, I, I mean, modeling compartment fires by placing objects with their physical properties and modeling pyrolysis or some very complicated interactions between small fire sources is very difficult. Most of us in engineering would rely on design fires and prescribed heat release rates. And I I guess for testing multiple hypotheses, probably you would also like put a one megawatt, five megawatt, 10 megawatt fire and see which is closer to, to the reality. How do you cope with that? Because I believe this would bring also a lot of uncertainty to your to your simulations.
1: Absolutely. And, and you have to do that again under the psychic method. You're testing different hypotheses by those scenarios. But sometimes people say, Oh, there's so much damage here. You can't possibly model this fire. And an example we had is we had building fire where the, the thing was so destroyed. Nobody knew for sure whether the, whether the ceiling was eight, nine feet or 10 feet. Okay. Okay. So what we can do is go in with a model and model the eight foot scenario and model the 10 foot scenario initially. And if we find that they lead to virtually indistinguishable outcomes, then we can say that that the exact height of the the ceiling between eight and 10 feet is not dispositive in determining the outcome of the fight. If we get a very different scenario when we do the eight feet versus the 10 feet, we say we can't reach a conclusion because we simply don't have enough of that data turned evidence in order to okay. ultimately, and so our cause has to be undetermined.
0: And the course of the fire, like when did windows shatter, for example, I would say that's, that's fundamental to the growth of the fire and, and, uh, development.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things that we look at. And if you've looked at my resume, you might know that I was one of the early people that published work in, uh, when I was at Virginia tech in window breakage and fires and a couple of the papers that we have, you made reference to in that way. And we've now been able to incorporate that window breakage into models. And so that does become an important piece of evidence. If it's reliable in, in the determination, have I properly assigned the right size fire, the right fire growth rate sort of stuff. And I would, we were involved in a fire that was. Thought to be an arson fire. And in fact, a man was arrested for the fire that killed both of his parents. And what became a critical piece of evidence in that case to get the arrest rejected was that a deputy police officer showed up at the scene and ran around to the back to try and rescue one of the parents and actually saw the time at which the window in the room where the fire started in the living room broke out. And we were able to show from our our modeling, that that window broke out as a result of a polyurethane couch burning, not somebody pouring massive amounts of gasoline into the room. It would have broken out before the deputy could have ever gotten there if, in fact, it had been an accelerated fire. The key thing being accelerants accelerate the rate of fire growth. They don't change the temperature. That was one of the the misunderstandings people had that you hear people saying, gasoline fires burn hotter. No, they burn faster. They don't burn hotter. Virtually all hydrocarbons, whether it's wood, plastics, gasoline, diesel fuel, all have a similar flame temperature. But an accelerant is used because it burns faster and it spreads the fire fat. And so that window breakage, uh, without even modeling, just using research from the literature, we were able to show no, this was not an accelerated fire, or else the deputy couldn't have arrived on the nine one one call and been around back to see that window actually break.
0: I often have this problem um, discussing fire with non-fire professionals, like temperature. It's gonna have well, that, that that's like fourteen hundred degrees Celsius. That's probably the max you can get,
1: and that that's chemistry, and you're not. It's not gonna differ that much. Trusting a comment on that. When we find things melted, yeah, can't be melted at 1,400 degrees C. It takes higher temperature. And the first question is, what was the actual fuel burning and what was the oxidizer? So okay. what it suggests is we had something different than normal materials burning in air. So, for example, you know, rocket fuel burns mm-hmm. significantly hotter than that, but it carries yeah. its own oxidizer with it. And you actually have to look at the at the chemistry, and I know yeah. that's a sore subject for some people. And one of the things we teach in our classes on fire fire science is how to calculate what's called the adiabatic flame temperature. That's getting in a lot of details. Mm-hmm. It's basically the hottest temperature you can get from a particular fuel oxidizer mix. And anybody who's used an oxyacetylene torch knows that you can't cut steel with acetylene air, mm-hmm. and the acetylene compressed air mixture doesn't do it. When you add the oxygen, you now change the chemistry and now you can get a significantly hotter flame. And so we can, thats another case where we can use that data and look at it. Is it reliable evidence? Do I have things that are melted that couldn't have been melted by ordinary combustibles burning in air? Does that mean I have to look for a different fuel source or a different oxidizer source? Fantastic. We had cases, for example, where somebody had medical oxygen, right? It was a patient okay. who had medical oxygen. And it turned out that the fire in the immediate area where it started was being oxidized, not by the air, but by the oxygen. So it was hotter and it was able to melt steel, literally liquefy steel. That's brilliant. Uh, and tell, tell me how much you can
0: read from a burn mark. Like, h- how much does it tell you? I I find it as, you know, I I find this as this fascinating uh, thing that an expert comes into a place where everyone else just sees a burnt room and they can see a story in what's written by the flames on the walls. So what does an artist see in those scars?
1: Well, hopefully it doesn't become like modern art, where uh, a colleague of mine whose first degree was in fine art and sculpture took me to a museum of modern art and I said, I guess I just don't, I'm not very artistic because I don't see some of these things. <laughs> she said, no, what's good modern art is whatever you like. There is no answer. So we don't do modern art, but what we do is over time you build up experience. Mm-hmm. and You know that gypsum board calcifies in a certain way and it takes a certain amount of fire exposure before it starts to crumble and collapse. So I go in the room and I see that the gypsum board in one area has has calcified and Crumpled and collapsed, but not in another area, even though there's smoke staining everywhere. And I say, ah, that tells me that this gypsum board was exposed to higher fire for a longer time than the gypsum board over here. And that allows me to look at those fire marks and look at different conclusions. We can look at wood members and there's mm-hmm. a lot of research that tells you how long it takes with a certain fire exposure to char A two by four or a two by eight, you know, a rafter or something like that. Or how long does it take to burn through plywood? So we can go in and look at those kind of burn scars and where the, you know, the person off the street just sees a whole bunch of soot and burn and everything. We see, oh no, it's much heavier charred here than it is over here, which means either had to have more fire exposure or fire exposure for a longer time. So those are the ways that we do that. But ultimately, have to come back to the science and say, I've done this analysis. Now I go to literature and I say, is this consistent with the literature on burn time for this kind of wood in this kind of uh, circumstance with this kind of fire exposure? I
0: love how you brought it, that it can be either a longer fire or a, or a bigger fire. Uh, and And I guess that that distinction probably is sometimes perhaps challenging.
1: But again, if you go back I like to use common sense examples for the average person because I it grease mm. a lot. Go to your fireplace. When you have a wimpy little fire, it takes forever for the big logs to burn. Mm. When you have a rip roaring fire, they burn a lot faster. Okay. But even the wimpy fire, if you let it go long enough, will burn the big pieces of wood. Right. So so you come to realize that there's a certain aspect of it, that it's a time versus intensity to get the amount of char that I see. There are some limits to that because there's a fire that's small enough that it simply just can't penetrate deep enough into a large wood member. Mm -hmm. And so the smaller fire is not capable even even, you know, a very long time where the large fire can do it in a a reasonably short time. And how can you, for example, going on, on the timber, how can you tell
0: the, the damage that was during the fire versus post fire smoldering damage,
1: for example? That's a great point. One of the issues that the scientific method demands you use, and we talk about this all the time, is what we call victim versus cause. And this comes up all the time in electrical fire, where somebody says, Oh, I found that this electrical fire is shorted. It's on it it obviously had arcing. okay that may be reliable evidence but it supports two hypotheses one hypothesis is that it was the cause of the fire the other hypothesis is it was the victim of the fire and sometimes we simply don't have enough other evidence reliable evidence to determine which one in some cases we can look at it and say since we can reliably put the origin of the fire, Over here, the only way that that damage wiring would have occurred is if it was still energized when the fire got to it. And therefore, we can now say that that makes it the victim. By the same token, if we say this is right in the middle of where our reliable fuel source is that can be readily ignited by a brief electrical spark, now the cause hypothesis is in
0: play. When you are facing a post-flashover fire, to what extent you can still see the spatial difference in in, in fire damage? Because I would assume that as soon as you transition into flashover, most of your compartment would be a victim to a very similar um, heat fluxes. Maybe I'm wrong in here,
1: but. Post-flashover fires add significant challenges to the fire investigator. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that we ultimately determined over the years of doing 921 through some testing and stuff, is we used to think that low burns again were indicative of an arson fire where somebody poured something Mm -hmm. on the floor. And it caused So you had a scar on the floor, for example. Right. So you see, so you see that the rug has been charred and everything and ah, it's an arson. Okay. That may be a reasonable hypothesis, but it's not the only hypothesis. And one of the questions you have to ask is, did the room flash over? Did the compartment flash over? Because we now know that the radiant energy from the hot upper layer can burn the carpet Mm -hmm. post-fire. So we now are in a scenario where we have two potentially different conflicting hypotheses and we have to use other evidence to reliably determine what. We had an arson fire that we determined was an arson fire that ultimately wasn't prosecuted where we were able to show that the, this was in a business, there was burns down the aisles of carpet. The issue of flashover was raised, and what we showed, we used modeling to do this, is that the fire, because it was a big space, never got a deep enough layer in the ceiling further away from the fire to have caused the carpet damp. Closer to the fire, where the layer was deeper, As it started to become a ceiling layer, as it went from being a plume to a ceiling layer, close in, it had enough radiant heat to be able to burn the carpet. But we showed that further away, there was no way to get carpet spread. And you had to look at two aspects because the radiant heat doesn't have to be enough to burn the carpet. It may be enough to warm it up sufficiently that you can still get spread along the carpet. And we had to look at both aspects. And what we ultimately determined was these burns were far enough away that there was n- insufficient heat from the upper layer to have allowed the fire to spread that way naturally. To close on
0: the use of scientific method, you said that it ends up with a verdict when you have a final test hypothesis. How confident or how much proof you have to have for your hypothesis to say it, it's it's a verdict? or Or how does a hypothesis change from being a hypothesis to being a verdict? Again,
1: that is ultimately a question of how much have you tested it? How much have you used reliable evidence? How much have you used the laws of math and physics to, to challenge it? And have you been able to eliminate all other reasonable hypotheses? And again, one of the things I like to, to point out is, you know, people, this idea of the hypothesis is any way I think it can happen. I said, no. The scientific method requires a, a hypothesis to be falsifiable. And by mm. that, we mean, I have this piece of reliable evidence. I can say that hypothesis can't be correct. And the example I like to give so people can understand this is, how do I ever rule out the scenario that my fire was started by invisible little green men from Mars? It's mm. not a falsifiable hypothesis. There's no amount of evidence I could ever collect that would allow me to falsify that hypothesis because they're invisible. And by the way, if they're invisible, how the heck do we know they're green? <laughs> and so, so I always challenge people with the, well, wait a minute, you're going to say that that's your hypothesis. How are you going to refute my hypothesis that this was started by invisible little green men from Mars? It's key. The concept of a hypothesis is, has to be falsifiable. There has to be, a reliable piece of data that if I have it will say that can't be the, the hypothesis. And so you constantly have to challenge your hypothesis and you modify it. If it fails a partial challenge, like the scenario we talked about, the room hypothesis wasn't wrong, but the first corner hypothesis was. We challenged that, we found out that that didn't hold up. So with additional data that becomes reliable evidence, we're now able to come up with, a, with another hypothesis. Do we stop there? No, we have to say, okay, is there a third hypothesis? And if I can think of one, can I falsify that compared to the second hypothesis that I want to hang my hat on? And so it's a constant process, never ends. And that's frustrating for people, And it's frustrating for the courts because courts want finality. And the answer is, I can only give you the best answer based on the reliable evidence I have today.
0: But, but in, in the end, it's better to leave the case undetermined rather than, than go into false hypothesis, right? Absolutely. So, and, and what about biases? So NFPA uh, even lists uh, expectation bias, confirmation bias. Uh, the investigator might have their presumptions or their favorite cause of fire, perhaps even. Uh, I guess scientific method, method is also something that defends us against that, right?
1: Yes, and so one of the examples we used to see a lot in arson fires, so an investigator shows up to the scene of a house that's for sale, and his first photo is of the for sale sign in the front yard before he's even looked at the fire. Okay, we go back to again, that's data, but is it reliable or relevant? And and the point is, here are houses for sale, millions of houses for sale every day in countries all around the world that don't have fire. And there are millions of houses around the world every day that have fires Mm. in order for sale. So a for sale sign is in no way indicative of whether this was an arson fire or not. And yet before nine twenty one, literally, we would have investigators going in to testify in a criminal trial. And the first photo they would show to the jury was the for sale sign. It's like, no, that's not relevant and reliable. And you've now biased your investigation because by taking that picture, in your mind, you've set the idea, Oh, this must be an arson fire because the house is for sale. And that mm. is a, a great example of expectation bias. Okay. One of the other places that we see both expectation and confirmation bias is investigator goes out in the field, makes certain field determinations, collects evidence and brings it to a lab. You tell the lab, Hey, I'm pretty sure that this was an arson fire and that somebody poured gasoline in the carpet samples, can you analyze these carpet samples and tell me whether they got gasoline in them or not? Well, you've now already fixed in that person's mind, either consciously or unconsciously, what the answer is you want. And all human beings kind of want to please their friends and their superiors. And so there's a tendency to find the answer that somebody expects you to find rather than the objective answer. And that's one of the ways that bias comes in. So, what does the scientific method say? To get past those biases, you have to do things like do double blinds. You know, so send the send the samples out to two different labs and don't tell them okay. the scenario. Simply say, "Can you analyze yeah. the samples and tell me what the molecules are in there?" And then get the data back and determine where that leads. Yeah, I, I keep
0: thinking about the one question: To what extent? The firefighting operations uh, damage your data and perhaps evidence in the scene. And can you account for that? Do you interrogate or do do you do interviews with firefighters about how they did the operation to, to count it
1: in? Absolutely. And firefighters are important in a couple of different ways. One, they're much more trained observers of fire and understand what they're seeing better than a layperson. So their observations okay. are important. And oftentimes these days, because of radio communications, those observations oftentimes are timestamp. So, that oh, we so they time record the time... okay? From but there there is a constant problem with, I used to say when I was in the fire department, we have a terrible PR problem because if the fire doesn't destroy the building, the firefighters generally do more damage to the building than the fire okay. does in order to save it. We cut a hole in your roof, and you know we do break out your windows and that sort of. Thing. So there is the issue of accounting for in what ways the firefighters change the fire scene. And there's been some increasing research in recent years to look at, say, how does a hose stream affect certain evidence during firefighting operations? You know, how does the change in ventilation that firefighters create? by cutting a hole in the roof, by opening certain windows? How does that change the progress of the fire? And can we now go backwards and account for that in our hypothesis? And if we can't, then we have to question whether our hypothesis is valid or not. Another way that sometimes modeling can help, and I'm involved in a fire right now where we just massive measurement of the building after it was reconstructed, so that we can model it and look at at the time that the the roof was breached, how did the fire flows change, and is that consistent with what the firefighters observed? Mm -hmm. And if not, then we've got to look at another scenario because the firefighters clearly altered this fire because they did a good job of saving the building. And so it's important to understand to what extent they're altering the scene through their firefighting activities, both ventilation and putting water on it, how does that have to be taken into account in my ultimate hypothesis on origin, cause and responsibility? Given that you, you have such an amazing
0: experience o- over many decades in, in doing this, do you see the, the fire scenes changing? You said that one of the things that comes from investigations is to learn and do better. So, so I, I wonder, how do you see like seeing fire scenes in 1990s and today uh are they very different from each other or it's, it's the same thing?
1: That's a, That's a great question. I'm sorry to say in February of this year, I celebrated my 50th year of joining the IFCA fire department while oh, I was cool. a student at Cornell. So Perfect. I've been at this. Congratulations. For too long a time. <laughs> in those wow. days, plastics were really just coming on the scene. If you remember the old movie, The Graduate, where the guy says one word for you, plastics, plastics. It's the future was, was right. coming into being in the, in the seventies. And over many decades, we saw a change in, in furnishings. We saw a change in insulation. We saw a change in building materials. And one of the things we saw was rooms much more prone to flashover because it turns out, as we learned that flashover is not dictated by fire load, but by heat release rate. And so when we had all these cotton batting couches, they may have had more fire load than a polyurethane couch just because of their density in terms of the, the total heat release if you burned them completely up. But what we found was that the heat release rate was much slower and so that they were much less prone to flash over. And so some of the rules of thumb of the investigation business that were valid before we had a lot of these post flash-over-fire investigations, now weren't so valid. And we had to mm. go back and reassess things. And one of the examples was with a, with a batting couch, you didn't often get the windows break because windows, again, break by a fairly rapid change in the temperature of the glass while it's confined, like the ice cube being dropped in the warm soda where it tries to expand rapidly and it's confined because of the frame. And that's what causes the window to break. Well, with the slower-growing fires, we didn't get those. And so that was one of the things where we had to change our thinking as the materials changed. And for many decades, I can tell you, it was very confounding because we had a mixture of these different types of materials. And still in a lot of places in Europe and and other places around the world, you don't have all of the modern materials that we have in a lot of first-world countries. And so the fire investigation and the fire investigator has to remind themselves about the specific material properties at the fire they're investigating. And that's, again, going back to the scientific method that says, don't go in with a bias. Don't think you know already what this is like when you walk in the door because the materials may not be what you first thought they were.
0: The world is changing. The materials are changing probably faster than ever before. How do investigators keep up with that?
1: Most fire investigators are not also fire researchers, so they have to rely on other people to do the research. And there are national labs in a number of places around the world. In the Scandinavian countries, there are a number of very good labs in Great Britain, in Canada, in the United States, and another number of other European countries. Some of them are collective, and also academia. Companies like Combustion Science and Engineering, where we do some of this research and and do it not just as part of litigation we're involved in, but sometimes just in trying to better understand circumstances that we've seen. That's part of what brought about the window breakage research, is trying to understand that. That's part of what brought about the work that we do on these loose connections that can generate these glowing connections electrically that are capable of starting a fire we saw these fires and outlets and other places. And why is this happening? It doesn't seem to make sense. So we got the University of Maryland to agree to give a student a master's degree if they could research that. And we funded the project. And that was actually Dr. McAllister's master's degree was in looking at electrical cause, And then she went on to the toxicology. We've done a lot of work looking at both the generation of toxic gases and the effects of them. Unfortunately, we can't really do human subject testing there, but in Jamie's doctorate, she did rat testing mm-hmm. so that we could understand the uptake of hydrogen cyanide and what the post-mortem levels of hydrogen cyanide can tell you about the fire. One of the things that we've learned over the years about fire investigation, where there are human victims or even sometimes animal victims, whether they survive or whether they, they perish is they are literally data collectors, right? The human body is an amazing data collector. Mm. And so you can go and interrogate those bodies for additional evidence that can help you understand things. And we can, we can look at, for example, carbon monoxide levels in somebody who died, hydrogen cyanide levels. I'm, I'm sure that Dr. Persher talked about some of these things and the modeling wow. that we can do. For four hours. <laughs> yes. I was involved. With a number of other people when I was at university in the National Institute of Standards and Technology funded projects on understanding the development of carbon monoxide in fires. Mm-hmm. So we now understand that a lot better and we can take that and put it together with the kind of models that Dr. Persher has and say, okay, if this person has this certain level of carbon monoxide afterwards, he can tell us something about the fire they were exposed to. And it's a way to test our hypothesis. Because if they have a high COHP level and our initial hypothesis was a fire that wouldn't generate much carbon monoxide says we've got a wrong fire scenario. If they've got a low carboxyhemoglobin and that's consistent with our fire scenario, then that's one more check that says that our hypothesis survives another challenge. And to close up on the
0: on the sources of, I I really love this, this toxicology discussion because indeed uh, victims can be very uh, certain uh, source of information about the atmosphere in in, in which they perished or survived. You, you can tell what was in the air, and by that, as as David explained in in his podcast episodes, you can figure out the equivalency factors, what was burning. Uh, what, what was the composition of it? it is, it's fascinating that you actually can do that. Uh, to what extent the building automation is a source of information for you, like fire detection systems? You oh. probably also want to have that information, right?
1: Absolutely. And just to, to finish up on the human factor, the other thing is that burns can provide important mm. information. Sure. The Society yeah. of Fire Protection Engineers a number of years ago, and it's now in the handbooks, undertook a really great analysis of looking at what levels of fire exposure lead to what levels of burn injuries. And so for victims who survive and even ones who perish, oftentimes the burn injuries provide us information in addition to the toxicology. Now, for building fire systems, whether they are passive or active detection or suppression system, can also provide important evidence if they're reliable. We talked about when a smoke alarm goes off compared to when somebody sees a fire can provide important information. The activation of sprinkler systems, the activation of heat detectors, oftentimes in larger building fires, that information goes out to remote stations and we can see sequencing, right? And, and sometimes that allows us to actually follow the initial fire growth by saying, oh, the smoke alarm in the left side of the room activated first. And 30 seconds later, the smoke detector in the right side of the room activated. And generally that tells you the fire probably started on the left side, but also modeling can help you verify that and say, okay, what fire do I need to have and how fast does it have to grow? So there's a 30 second time difference between when these two smoke alarms go off or between when the first and second sprinkler activate or heat detect. So those alarm systems can provide very valuable data, which can be shown to be reliable, which oftentimes it is, can provide evidence for not only formulating hypotheses, but for challenging them. And and the evidence is critical both for formulating and for challenging.
0: And what about the accidental footage? Like people tend to record the fires today. Probably you wouldn't have that 30 years ago because no one had camera in their pocket and now everyone does. So, So you must have a lot of accidental snippets of videos. No one's recording a video for the whole duration and time step. It's perfectly, but you have snippets of that. I know there's a a group in London, Forensic Architecture, who do amazing reconstructions of fires from accidental footage, but in in normal investigations, is this
1: a source of knowledge for you? Absolutely. And again, one of the first biggest things it can do is provide you with ways to challenge your hypothesis. Because okay. if your hypothesis says the fire ought to be bursting out the side window 10 minutes into this and somebody's got a camera and it's time stamped and it shows that it didn't bust out the window until 17 minutes into the fire, you got to challenge your hypothesis. And so even though they might not have captured the whole fire, they may have captured a snippet that you can now use to challenge Your hypothesis. But one of the things you got to be very careful about, and this goes to alarm systems too, is you got to make sure that you're all on the same clock and that the clock is accurate. We oftentimes find that there's a difference between the clock for an alarm system and the real time, and they can often be off by a couple of minutes. And you have to be able to account for that and time shift the data by testing and seeing, is there a difference? And if so, if I can measure it, Now I can account for that. And that's one of the ways that I can use the laws of physics, that time is immutable, to to be able to challenge my hypothesis and revise it. Richard, uh, it was fantastic
0: talking to you. Uh, For the first time, I had a fire investigator in the podcast, and I I appreciate it a lot. And I I certainly need to, to do more of those because... Actually, this is also very helpful to engineers to understand. Like if we understand how buildings burn and how fires happen, we we perhaps can do better engineering to protect against those. And and for my engineering audience, that's, that's probably the thing they want to do. Any final words to maybe young investigators coming to this
1: industry? Well, first to follow up on what you just said, I think that's absolutely important to fire protection engineers who who aren't fire investigator that good accurate fire investigations be done so that they can understand when and if they need to modify their design philosophy. So mm-hmm. that is critically important. Oftentimes the, the investigations get driven by more near term issues of who pays or does somebody go to jail or not? But the longer term issues are what are more important to the, to the fire protection community, does that mean I need to change the materials I use when I do a certain thing? Do I have to design my compartments a different way so they last longer? You know, all of those kind of issues. To the new fire investigators, here's the advice I always give. Yeah. Understand the science as best you can because the science is well proven and largely immutable. The one thing a young investigator can never best an old investigator like me on is years of experience. The fact of the matter is, whether you're you're 80 or 20, F equals MA. So if you yeah. understand F equals MA and you're a 20-year-old investigator, you're on the same firm footing than an 80-year-old investigator. So go to the literature, understand the science, make sure you're well-grounded in the science, because that's something that can put you on as close to possible and even footing with somebody who has 30 more years of experience that you can only get in 30 years. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Richard. This this was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be on your show. And you know, maybe we can do this again sometime.
0: And that's it. Thank you, Richard. There will definitely be a follow-up to this episode. There is so many things we need to further cover. It was very interesting to dive with you to the subject of fire investigations. I must say for a long time in the podcast, I distinguished two worlds of fire science. One, the world that fire engineers live in and one being the world of firefighters, where these worlds do not always cross and there's so much in common, but also so many differences between them. Now, after talking to you and then reading up on an FPA 91, I see there's actually a third world. It's, we're living in fire metaverse, it seems. There's a world of fire investigations, where different things are considered, Uh, there's a different view on fire science, which is interesting because we're all in the same fire physics and fire mathematics. But certainly investigators see the world of fire different than the researchers do. And as Richard mentioned, these worlds overlap a lot because the investigators we relate to our science on having good hypothesis or challenging hypothesis. This is the basics of their work. They need our science to do that. And we also need fire investigations to understand what are we doing in the world of engineering, how the choices that we do in designing buildings impact the real fires, and actually to understand what's the scale of the of the hazard out there. We often exaggerate the hazards of fires for some reasons. And uh, yeah, having uh, investigative statistics lets us catch up with reality and see where we really are with the fire problem. So thank you for listening. I hope this was interesting to you. And I'm simply ashamed it took over 100 episodes of Fire Science Show to finally have investigations covered in it. But uh that's not the last episode on fire investigations in the show. So look forward to the future. And next week, another episode, this time not investigations, but also something very, very interesting and useful for, for fire engineers. So see you here again next Wednesday. Thank you. Bye.
1: This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.